And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Patrick. Well, good morning, Christ community. Good to see you all. Uh, oh, you said good. Oh, thank you. Oh, Carol, that was so nice of you. Good morning. good morning. Oh, there we go. There we go. That was nice. That was pleasant. Uh, it's good to see you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed Kappel. And for those of you that do know me, my name is still, it's still Reed Kappel. Uh, but, uh, but it's really good to be with you all this morning. If you do have a Bible, please turn to Matthew 20, uh, which is where we'll be this morning in our text uh, and for the sermon. And, and as you're turning there, um, one of the things that I know, I, I don't need to know you very well to know that each and every one of you has something you regret in life. We, we all have something that, that we look back on and, and so wish that a flux capacitor existed and we could go back in time and slap ourselves in the face and say, why did you do that? Uh, and, and there's various elements of, and degrees of regret. You know, sometimes it's, I shouldn't have had that, you know, 17th jalapeno popper or I shouldn't have sent that text. Uh, but it could be even something bigger, like I shouldn't have entered that relationship, shouldn't have taken that job, I shouldn't have gone to this school, especially if it was KU. And there's a lot of reasons, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. But you know, but seriously, we, there, there are various levels of regret. And, and one of the best pictures that I think captures the irony of regret, actually, is this, this is one of my favorite pictures, is no regrets. <laughs> the people not laughing don't know how to spell. That's why they're like, oh, what? what? I got that tattoo, you know? But, um, but seriously, I mean, there are things that we just look back and we're like, I just wish I could have changed that. I would have done things differently. And, and my, my story that jumps to mind was when I was a junior in high school, um, we had what's called the powder puff game, where the girls play flag football and the boys coach or they're, they're cheerleaders. So we kind of reverse roles here. And so I was a junior. I thought it'd be fun to get my friends together. Let's be the cheerleaders. I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. And so, so I get all decked out. I'm wearing these red jogging tights, and I looked good in them. And then I had this, this, this cheerleading skirt that probably fit like an 11-year-old girl, and then uh, decorated a T-shirt and had a wig and all that. So we show up, and my friends show up late, but when they show up, they're not dressed up as cheerleaders. I'm the only one who's dressed up. And that's not even the part I regret, okay? So we're there, so I'm like, you know, I'm just going to embrace this. So we're cheering on the team. I'm cheering on the team. And I decide to go to the other side of the field to taunt the seniors. And so I run by, and I'm like, eh, seniors are lame, or something like that. And, and they start chasing me. These, these, like, 10 or 12 guys who are much bigger than me start chasing me. And I'm thinking, oh, I'll, I'll just run, and then they'll stop. But they're coming after me, and they're, they're rather angry, and they're saying words that you wouldn't see in Disney movies. And so I decided, like, I need to get out of here, and so I run into the bleachers, thinking that that will keep them from coming after me. But no, they enter. They, they come into the, the bleachers, and we're going up, and I get to the top, and now it's, I'm, I'm pinned. So it's like either death by angry crowd or death by going over here. And so one of the guys says, let's rip his skirt off. <laughs> and I was like, let's not. Let's not do that. Let's do something else. Like... Play Scrabble or something, you know? And so they, so they ripped my skirt off. They ripped my shirt off. I am now standing in front of hundreds of people in nothing but red jogging tights. And I don't look good, actually, in this setting. And, and to make matters worse, my friend Wes, who was the, the game announcer, gets on. Yeah, you know where this is going. And he goes, uh, if everyone could pause and give their attention to the east side of the stadium, you will see human regret manifested in perfect form. 
And, and so now everyone is staring at me. And it's just like, what do you do? You're just like, oh, okay. And so that's one of those situations I wish I could take back, you know, just so many, so many regrets in life, but that one definitely kind of takes the cake. And, and like I said, we all have various levels of regret, various things that we'd say, I would have done that differently. I, I wish I could go back and slap myself in the face and just say, what were you thinking? And, and the reason I bring this up is because Matthew, in, in this story, in Matthew 20, it's actually this kind of slap in the face moment where Matthew is in some ways kind of giving us this, this opportunity to look at this exchange between Jesus and the blind men and as a way to kind of say, look, this is an opportunity that the blind men have to encounter Jesus. And, and, and they are quick to respond. So much so that because I mean, they, they do so because they don't want to regret this opportunity. That if they missed out on this, it probably would be one of those situations where they would slap themselves in the face for missing out on this king that is in their presence. And we're going to see that there's this sense of urgency and, and, and dependency in the tone and the voice of the blind men as they come to encounter this king who has come before them. Matthew is giving us this reminder that there is this one choice that in our lives that is more important than any other choice. And that if we miss out on it, we may find ourselves regretting something that we have never regretted before, a degree of regret that we have not experienced. Now, this passage in Matthew 20, the end of chapter 20, it's actually kind of a hinge moment in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus is kind of bringing uh, to an end his itinerant ministry of, of, of teaching and healing, and he's now beginning his journey to Jerusalem, leading into Holy Week, which is really the, the, the primary purpose of why Jesus has come. And so in this kind of hinge moment, Jesus is moving from public ministry, heading towards Jerusalem. It's this kind of perfect moment, actually kind of hit pause in our series in Matthew. And we're, we're going to pick it back up actually in January. And we have a few different um, series that we're doing in the fall, which uh, Nathan will share in a little bit. Uh, but I just want us to see, we're kind of hitting a little pause on Matthew here. And I think it's a right time because Jesus is shifting his focus from his public ministry to Jerusalem. And in this hinge, in this change in Matthew's narrative, we see this exchange between Jesus and the two blind men. So Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Uh, it, there are many people, there's a crowd following him, and many of them are going because of the Passover feast. But also they're, they're just following Jesus because people have heard about him. His reputation is growing. They want to be near him. And so as this crowd is growing and growing, as they're journeying toward Jerusalem, in the hustle and bustle, we see this exchange between Jesus, the crowd, and these two blind men. And these two men, they're, they're not part of the crowd. Matthew makes it very clear they are distinct. They are separate from the crowd. They're, even Matthew even says they're on the side of the road. So, so they're kind of pushed away to the side. They're not in the road. They're not with the crowd. They're pushed to the side. Matthew wants us to see these two men are outsiders in every form of the word. And so what do these two outsiders do? Is, is, I mean, as they begin to kind of feel the vibrations of, of this crowd getting closer and closer, as, as they start to kind of hear uh, the crowd getting closer, they're probably even tasting in some ways the dust that's being kicked up from the ground of all the people walking. What do they do? They quickly cry out to Jesus and call him the son of David. Which is a very unique term. If, you've with, if you're with us earlier in Matthew, um, we see the same term was used by the Canaanite woman in referring to Jesus. That he sa she says, Jesus, son of David. This is not just a term describing Jesus as cool and great and powerful. It's a specific title describing Jesus as the Messiah. The one promised by God through the prophets to be the deliverer of God's people. And it is this title that the blind men use to call Jesus. 
And so how does Jesus respond to these outsiders, these rejects, these people who are kind of seen as the, the lowliest of the low? He stops. He stops on his journey towards Jerusalem for the purpose that he has entered this world for. He stops and speaks to, engages, and interacts with these two blind men. And I think what Matthew wants us to see in this exchange is that these blind men actually have a sight, have a vision and a clarity on who Jesus is that the crowd doesn't. The people who are closest to Jesus don't see him as clearly as these two blind men do. And I think that's what Matthew is trying to show us. That essentially these men, they, and what we're going to see is that they won't let anything stand in the way or cause them to miss this king that is now in their midst, in their presence. And so a couple things that we're going to see is, is actually these two blind men, I think in many ways, model for us what it means to respond to and follow after Jesus. And the first thing I want us to see is that when it comes to responding to and following after Jesus, they don't let anyone stop them. They don't let anything or anyone stop them from pursuing Jesus. And that's the first thing I want us to see. And so by all accounts, these blind men, they, they are outsiders. They are rejects. They are the lowliest of the low. And Matthew wants us to see this. They are, they are physically distant from the crowd. They're on the side of the road. They are uh, kind of societally disconnected. They're, they're beggars. They're blind men seen as, as kind of the, the rejects of society. But there's even a sense in which they're morally seen as separate from the crowd. Because in that day, if you were blind... The, the, the typical way of thinking was that you were blind because of some moral impropriety, that you, were, you had done something wrong or your parents had done something wrong. So these two blind men are physically distant, they're societally distant, and they're even morally distant from the crowd. And, and Matthew does this throughout his entire gospel. He is constantly showing the irony between those that should see Jesus clearly, like the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jews, and they don't. And the Gentiles and the outsiders and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, these are the people that see Jesus clearly. And again, this is one example where Matthew shows us this. And to see kind of the divide here, we see in verse 31, the crowd rebuked the two blind men, telling them to be silent. But they, the blind men, cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So what we have in this exchange is essentially this kind of age-old divide between the cool, rich, popular, pretty kids and the reject kids. And these cool, rich, pretty, popular kids are saying, you don't deserve to be with us. Be quiet. We, are, we know what we're doing. We get to be with Jesus. You need to stay over here in your own corner while we do what we do. You should not be a part of us. And, and, and again, this is what Matthew wants us to see is that this divide that we've all experienced in some way, and we've been on probably both sides in some part of our lives, Matthew wants us to see it's the outsider that sees Jesus clearly. And keep in mind, this is the same crowd that's been following Jesus, who's been listening to his teachings of mercy and grace and forgiveness and the kingdom of heaven, and yet they still look at these blind men, and it's not enough that they stay blind. They want them to be mute as well. Be quiet. Stop with your, with your loud de declarations that Jesus is the son of David. Notice they're silencing the only people that are speaking truth in this moment. It's not enough that they're blind. The crowd wants them to be mute as well. And again, we see this irony that it is those that we tend to say they're on the outside. They, they don't fit the mold of what it means to follow Jesus. You don't look the right part. You don't act the right part. You don't speak the right part. It's these people that tend to get it that tend to see Jesus, and it's those that we think should get Jesus who actually don't. 
So these men, these two blind men, knowing, knowing their disadvantaged state, you know, they know that they have strikes against them. They're blind, they're beggars, they're, they're the societal rejects, and yet they don't allow their position in society or even their position with the crowd, they don't allow that to serve as a cause to miss out on this king that is now walking in their midst. They know their circumstance is bleak. They know that they are the outcasts of society. They know that they don't fit the mold. And here again, Matthew shows us the great irony that these men who have no sight are able to look upon themselves and Jesus with impeccable clarity. Although they recognize their lowly state, they know that Jesus, the son of David, is the Messiah who is rich in mercy. That is why they're able to cry out to him with boldness. They know the one whom they're crying to. And they, don't, and they take every chance they get to see this king and to not miss out on him. And here is where we have a lot to learn, I think, from, from the vision of these blind men. They know that there is no sin or no marred character or no physical disability that can prevent us from encountering, engaging, responding to, and following after Jesus. There is no, nothing in our past that can be so dark, so horrendous, so offensive that Jesus would look at and say, you are too far gone. I've got to move on to somebody else. The blind men know this. They know themselves and they know Jesus very clearly. They know that there is nothing in their past so poisonous and destructive that the antidote of Jesus' love and mercy can't heal and redeem. And because of that confidence of the son of David that they're crying out to, they pursue him in hopes that they don't miss him. But not only do they prevent their past from being an obstacle, you know, they, they, they don't look at their, their, their position, their circumstances, and who they are and who they've been. Not only do they, they keep their past from being an obstacle, but they don't let the crowd and their words and the labels that they're putting upon them, they don't allow the crowd to be an obstacle either. As the crowd is trying to silence them, what do they do? They cry out even more. And so what we need to see here is that these blind men won't let anything get in their way. They won't let anything stop them in pursuing this king. They won't let their past, they won't let their brokenness, they won't let their societal status serve as a barrier. But neither do they allow the labels that have been falsely put upon them by other people. They don't allow that to be a barrier as well. And, and for some of us, that we, we identify that. We, we have ex experienced this labeling where, where somebody along the lines in our life said that we were this, that we were a loser, that we were a reject, that we were unlovable, unworthy, damaged goods, and we have believed it. And we've lived out that identity. And we have allowed a label and a definition to define us and explain who we are that Jesus would have never used to describe us. And these blind men don't allow the labels of blind, beggar, reject, outcast. They don't allow those words to define them and they don't allow those words to serve as a barrier between them and Jesus. So really, just, just to pause for a second, I think, I think some questions for us to consider as we look at this first point of the blind men not letting anything stop them from going after Jesus, a question for us to consider is this. Is there something from your past that is keeping you from Jesus? Is there something that you have done or has been done to you, something you have experienced that you would say, because of this, because of X, Y, and Z, I am too far gone, I am too broken, there's no way that, that, that Jesus could redeem or forgive me. I, I, I can't even allow myself to entertain the thought that I could be loved by the creator of all things. 
And this is a question that we should all wrestle through. Is there something that you have done or something that has been done to you that has led you to believe that you are too far gone, too far broken for Jesus to restore? In other words, what sin in your life are you saying extends beyond the reach of God's grace and Jesus' mercy? What sin are you giving too much credit to over and above God's ability and willingness to forgive and redeem it? Yes, our sin runs deep, but what we have to understand is that the grace of God through Jesus Christ runs deeper. As the great hymn, hymn writer Thomas More once penned, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And so is there something from your past that is keeping you from Jesus? But a second question to consider is this. Is there a label, a title, a definition, a label that you have allowed to define you, that someone has put upon you, who, who does not have the ultimate authority to tell you who you are? Have you embraced and accepted a label that Jesus would not have given to you? And, and are you living into that identity and saying, well, no, this is who I am and this is what I've, I've been and so therefore this is all I ever will be. And perhaps you're letting that label that was wrongfully placed upon you, you're allowing that label to be the barrier and the obstacle between you and Jesus. And if that's the case, what we have to understand is that we are not ultimately defined by who we are and what we've done or by what has been done to us. But we're ultimately defined by who Jesus says we are. And the blind men know this. And that's why they, they don't allow their past, their status, their labels to serve as a cause to miss this king. And, and, and the tragedy is that, that for some of us, the labels that we have heard and we've received and lived into, they were labels given to us, just like in our story, from the crowd. From the crowd that was around Jesus. From people who would say they're followers of Jesus, but they have used their words to destroy rather than to build up. Or some of us perhaps have been the one who has given that label. And I think what we see in this story is that we should not, we should not on the receiving end believe and live into any label given to us. Neither should we deliver and give out any label upon someone that Jesus is not prepared to use to describe us. So we see that these blind men don't allow their status, their background, their failures, their baggage, their status to be a barrier between them and Jesus. But we see a second thing that, that we should learn from and take from these two blind men. It's, that's this, that they don't even let themselves get in the way. They don't even let who they are and what they want deep down be a barrier between them and Jesus. What I mean by this is that sometimes the barriers between uh, barriers of faith are, are external. Uh, they're, they're from other people, but, but a lot of times the barrier is internal. That the thing keeping us from Jesus is actually the desires of our heart. And we find ourselves desiring and wanting something over and above Jesus. And in so doing, we're actually creating a desire for something that will never satisfy. And, we're, and simultaneously, we are preventing ourselves, robbing ourselves, keeping ourselves from the one thing that ultimately can satisfy our hearts. And so Jesus, he asked this question of the disciples. If you notice, he asked this question. He says, what do you want? In verse 32 and 33, stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now Jesus asked, I mean, it's a very simple question. What do you want? But it's actually a very profound question, and it's a question that all of us should wrestle with, 
a question, whether, you're, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you, are just, you want nothing to do with him, you, you have to answer the question, what do you want in life in general? But what is it that you want from Jesus? And, and if you remember earlier in Matthew 20, Jesus asks the same question of, of the mother of James and John. You remember, she, she comes to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want? And she says, would you allow my, my sons to sit at your right hand, left hand? I, I want them to have this authority and status and recognition. You see, the mother asked Jesus for something for her kids, not because she really wants her boys to have Jesus. She wants Jesus to do something for her boys so that she can feel proud about them. So at the end of her life, as she's looking through her scrapbook and saying, ah, remember when Jesus did this for you? I feel so good. My boys are all grown up and I'm proud of them. She doesn't want Jesus for her kids. She just wants something from Jesus for her kids. But something that's different about the blind men is that yes, while they ask for something from Jesus, for healing, what we'll see is that what they're actually asking for is for him himself. But when we see Jesus as simply a means to something else, we are not seeing him for as he is. He is just a ticket to something greater. A story of this from my childhood, when I was in fifth grade, um, I, there was a girl in my class who had a crush on me. Can't blame her. I can't blame her. But she... Uh, uh, you can't blame There's a lot of reasons why. But she, she liked me. I didn't like her. I wasn't really into girls, you know. But, but she calls me up as, during the summer. She calls me up and she says, hey, Reed, uh, I wanted to let you know that my family, we just bought a new pool. I wanted to see if you wanted to come over and swim. I was like, I mean, I can make time to go swimming. I love swimming. That was like my favorite thing to do. And so I didn't care who you were. I mean, like, you could be like the greatest enemy in the world. It's like, I will go swim with you. I don't care. And so I asked my brother Ryan to drive me over there. We're pulling into her driveway. I'm not kidding you. We pull in, and she is sitting in a baby pool in her driveway. Yeah. Like, you know, like the, like the four-foot plastic, like, she's just bathing in her, in her driveway. And I was like, I'm, I'm not getting in that. I'm not doing that. There's no way. And so, so I just tell Ryan, it's like, Ryan, put the car in reverse and take me home right now. He's like, well, I think you should go talk to her. I was like, what am I going to say? I'm not going to bathe with a girl in public. That's... I think the Bible says something about that. I'm not sure. But, and so I tell him, he's like, just leave. And so he's like, so he has to get out and then apologize to this girl. Like, sorry, my brother's an idiot, you know, and, and is using you for a pool that's really just a bathtub. And so in that story, the, the reason I tell is because I didn't care about this girl. I had, I had no interest in her. I didn't see her as, as a person of value or worth. I just saw her as someone who had something I wanted. And when that something actually wasn't there, she was nothing to me. And I left. Now, it would have been weird if I stated, I'm, I'm sure, and that's another issue, but, but I, want, I want us to see, the reason I share the story is because when we see Jesus as just a means and not the end, we are not seeing him for who he truly is, and I believe the blind men see him rightly. Again, we must ask ourselves this question, what do we want and what do we want from Jesus? And oftentimes what we want is something other than Jesus. And that something, it's, it's not even always a bad thing. You, you see, the, the, the issue with our desires, the reason why our desires serve as a barrier between us and Jesus is not because we necessarily love and desire bad things, but we just desire good things too much. That there is this imbalance, this, this exaggerated picture of I want this, and once I have as much of this, then I will be content. David Pallison, in his book, Seeing with, with New Eyes, which is a great title, uh, he, he frames this idea for us very well. He says, the evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, but in the fact that we want it too much. Natural affections for any good thing become inordinate, ruling cravings. 
The things we desire in life make good goods, but terrible gods. So the question still remains, what is it that we want? And, and is there a sense in which what we want, we're desiring it too much? And, and perhaps we have this, this, this skewed view of the thing we want, and we think that once we get it, then we'll finally arrive and be content. But perhaps the thing that we want is actually causing us to miss out on the king who is in our midst and with us. Is what we want actually keeping us from Jesus? You see, where the mother failed, the mother of James and John, where she failed, where she saw Jesus as just a means to something else, the blind men see Jesus for who he is. And yes, they ask him for healing, for sight, but what we see, what we'll actually see in this text is that what they want is Jesus himself. So the blind men, they do, they do ask Jesus to do something for him. They do want Jesus to heal him. But, but what I want us to see is I believe Jesus saw the intention of their heart and that what they were asking for was not just physical sight. They wanted sight that they might see Jesus. And I believe because Jesus knew the intention of the heart, what, what Jesus does for them reveals, I believe, what's going on in the mind and the hearts of these two blind men. And it's something that we might miss in, in, in our English translations uh, because the words in verse 33 and 34 for eyes, in our, in our English translation, it just says eyes. But it's actually two different words entirely. The first word that the, the, the blind men use, they say, Lord, in verse 33, Lord, let our eyes be open. And then Jesus in pity touched their eyes. That's a different word. And that word that, that Jesus refers to is actually, it's more of a poetic word that typically means the, the eyes of the soul. There's something a little bit more poetic and creative behind what Jesus is doing. And so, yes, he grants them physical sight, but he also grants them spiritual sight. Why? Because I believe Jesus knew that the intention of their heart was to have physical sight so that they might behold the son of David. Because that was their heart, because they wanted Jesus, he granted them their desire for physical sight. I think Jesus knew this, and I think it's exactly why he gave them what they asked for. So then for us, we just still have to ask the question, what is it that we want? As we wrestle with what it means to respond to Jesus and follow after Jesus, we need to consider what the desires of our hearts are. And is there a sense in which what we want is actually causing us to miss out on Jesus? So just a couple of questions of reflection as well for this. The first question would be this, is, is, is what you want in life really what you want in life? Is the thing that you are saying, I mean, I mean, we all have that thing where we're saying, once I get here, once I have this, once I arrive at this place, then I'll be content. Then this haunting feeling of longing will go away and I will finally arrive. What is the thing that you are giving your life to? You would just say, I want this. I mean, how would you answer the question honestly? What do you want? And is that truly what you want in life? Once you get it, does that haunting feeling of longing stay? Or does it fade away? The, the weird thing is that in all of our experiences in life, I mean, don't you think we would, we would come to the point that, that there's nothing that actually does that? I mean, once we get to that point, like once I arrive here, once I get this, once I have this, I'll be, I'll be content. But when has that ever happened and actually stuck? And it's actually stayed and remained. We always have this longing for more. That's why C.S. Lewis so brilliantly said, this is probably my favorite Lewis quote of all time, where he says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. 
And so just honestly ask that question, is what you want in life really what you want in life? But secondly, is Jesus just a means to something else you want? Is he just a means to something else you want, or is he actually the aim of your heart? Is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one who your life is fully submitted to, surrendered to? Is he the one that, I mean, is he the lens through which you look at all of reality and make sense of all things? Is he the one that you were most concerned about, most interested in, that his opinion and approval of you is what you are seeking above all things? Or is he simply a commodity used for some other gain? Is he just some other hobby amongst a list of other hobbies? Is he just another account you follow on Twitter, so to speak, just among all these other voices? Is he just another task that you check off on your to-do list? Again, the blind men show us that there is no better person to give our lives to than this king, and there's no better time to respond to this king than now. And, and this is where it kind of builds, that, that for some of us, you know, that the barrier, the obstacle that keeps us from faithfully following Jesus consistently or following him even at all for the first time is our past. It's our status. It's who we are. It's what we've done. It's what's been done to us. Or it's the crowd. It's the label that we've allowed to be our defining characteristic and that that's, that's who I am and so therefore I'm not really in a place to follow Jesus. Or for, for some of us, it's, it is our desires, that we want something else over and above him. But perhaps for some of us, the obstacle, the thing keeping us from responding to Jesus, following Jesus, is tomorrow. That perhaps tomorrow is the thing we're looking at and just saying, you know what, I can, I can do this tomorrow. I, I can get right with Jesus later in life. I'll take my faith seriously once I get out of high school, once I get out of college, once I get married, once I have kids, once the kids are gone. Like whatever it is, we're always looking at the next stage. And then I'll take, I'll take Jesus seriously. I'll kind of get my act together and kind of, you know, be a Christian as I'm supposed to. And so maybe you're here on Sundays, you're, you're fine kind of giving one hour of your week here and that's great. But, but as far as submitting to Jesus... As the king of all things, as, as the one who has come to satisfy the craving of your soul, you're like, well, I'm not quite there yet. And if that's you, if tomorrow is the obstacle that stands in your way, my question to you is this. Why, why choose to be blind one more day? Why, why choose to, to live a life of limited vision, of limited clarity? Clarity to see yourself rightly, clarity to see others rightly, to see the world rightly, and most importantly, clarity to see Jesus rightly. Why choose to be blind one more day. We all procrastinate. We all put things off. You know, whether it's, it's, it's mowing the lawn, it's, it's homework, uh, whether it's our taxes. We all love singing the procrastinator's theme song. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You know, like we do it because, I mean, like we can put things off because tomorrow, it's only a day away, folks. It's only a day away. And so we do. We think I can do this later because it's going to come. But here's the reality. Not one of us in this room is promised tomorrow. Not one of us is promised tomorrow. And I don't say that to be morbid and dark and to manipulate you with emotion, but the reality is not one of us is promised tomorrow. And we don't know if our life will be taken from us this night. But yet we still live with that mindset that tomorrow's coming. And I can put this off until tomorrow. I can get right with Jesus later. I'll take this seriously. I'll, I'll kind of consider what it means to follow him and surrender to him in all of my life later. But none of us are promised tomorrow. But we don't live with that mindset. We believe, yeah, yeah, tomorrow's coming and it's fine. And we reject the wisdom that the psalmist says that wisdom comes from numbering our days. Teach me to know my number of days that I might have a heart of wisdom. But we don't think in that way. We think we can wait. We think we can put this off and hold off until later. 
And again, the blind men show us how to respond to and follow after Jesus. It should be seen with this sense of imminence, of urgency, of, of right now. Like, th- this is the time. I'm not going to miss out on this king who is before me. This might be my last chance. And I believe it's that same sense of expectancy and urgency that we should have. Yes, initially in following Jesus, but, but also throughout our life. For the follower of Jesus, there should be this urgency of pursuing him, knowing him, understanding him, submitting to him in all of life. But we think we can just wait and do that tomorrow and get serious about it later. But the blind men show us this urgency, and we see that in verses 31, 30 and 31. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out what? They cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You feel the urgency in their cry. You feel that this is their only chance, and if we don't get him, if he doesn't turn around, this is it. They don't even let tomorrow stand in their way of receiving Jesus. And to be honest, like I said, we don't fully believe that. We, we, we think that tomorrow's coming and that we can put this off. But again, none of us are promised tomorrow. So a couple questions just for us to consider around this barrier and obstacle to following Jesus. The first question is this, what are you waiting for? What is keeping you from following this king? What, what is the thing? What's the season? What's the circumstance, the situation? What, what is it that you're saying, once, once this happens, then I'll start taking my faith seriously. Then I'll, I'll begin to consider the claims of Jesus. Once I'm allowed to kind of get through you know, my college years and, and kind of party and get all that stuff out of the way, then I'll kind of, then I'll kind of like get serious and then figure it out. Is that the way we think? Is that the way we operate as it, when it comes to responding to and following after Jesus? And if that's you, then do you honestly think that when that moment comes, when that situation arises, when that season of life you enter into, do you really think anything's going to change? Do you really think that you'll be, you'll be better positioned and, and ready to receive Jesus as Lord, that, that there's something about that season that's magical, that you will be more conducive, have more of a willing spirit to humble yourself before him and live for him entirely? Don't let tomorrow cause you to miss this king. The second question Do you live like tomorrow may not come? Do you live like tomorrow may not come? Do you know that your days are numbered? Do you know that death awaits each and every one of us in this room? And again, I don't say it to be dark. I don't say it to be morbid. But just we would be fools if we live with that kind of naive perspective. That yeah, tomorrow's coming. It's fine. It it, it came yesterday. It's going to come today. It's going to come tomorrow. But none of us are promised that. Do you live like tomorrow may not come. You see, we're all going to face death at some point. And we don't know when that's going to come. And so the question for us is, what is it that's in our corner that is going to provide the, the comfort, the strength, the power to face death? Well, I mean, all of us have something in our corner that we're relying on as we await death. And the question is, will it be good enough when that day arises? And what I would say to you is this, if, if you want to be ready, to, ready and able to, to not only face death, but to stare at death and taunt it and talk trash to it and say, you have nothing on me, you can't finally touch me, you're a shadow, you don't have power over me, why? Because I have come to trust the one who delivered the final death blow to death itself. And when that is in your corner, when he is in your corner, you can look at death in a very different perspective. 
It is not an enemy that we are awaiting and know that we will succumb to, but it is a shadow that ultimately cannot harm us when we come to trust in the one who looked at death and said, you will not have the final word. I will. When Jesus is seen for who he is as not only the king, not only the son of David, but the defeater of death itself, we are able to face death with a sense of confidence and say, as the apostle Paul said, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It has been swallowed up. It has been destroyed. The death of death has been accomplished through Jesus. And when he is in your corner, you can face tomorrow. You can face death. You can live with the perspective of tomorrow may not come, but that doesn't change the fact that I know that my life is secure in the one who defeated death for me. See, as Jesus is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem in this story, you know, remember, this is the purpose of why he's come. He's come to live and die and rise again. And as he's heading to Jerusalem for the purpose of his existence, what does he do? The crowd's pushing him along. It's really, there's this hustle and bustle. And what does he do? He stops. And he stops for these two blind men. In the chaos of getting to Jerusalem for the purpose of his existence, he stops. And what do we see here is that Jesus, the only thing Jesus stops for is you and me, essentially. That Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, the creator of all things, stops for you and stops for me. Why? Because he wants you to join him, to be a part of, of the relationship that existed in the beginning. As Jesus prayed in the garden in John 17, he prays to the Father, Father, I pray that they might be with me as I am with you. The reason Jesus has come is to bring those who are far off and be brought near, to make strangers friends, to make orphans family. This is the purpose of why Jesus has come. Jesus came, yes, to stop sin and to stop death, but he has come to call your name. He has come to invite you to not only a better life, but an entirely new life. And, and the beautiful thing is that even, even though even though it may feel as though there are so many things telling us that, that we've lost our chance, we've missed our chance. What this story in Matthew is telling us is that it's not too late. It's not too late because we have now, we have the present to respond. And so my concern is that as we began talking about regret, my concern is that for some of us, the greatest regret we will face in life is that we will miss this king and that we will feel like the blind man saying, I'm going to miss him, I'm going to miss him but we have a chance to guard ourselves from facing that regret, the greatest regret ever, by responding to this king and following him with our entire lives. I think one of the best ways that kind of sums up this whole posture, this whole response is, is in the hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, you, come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall, if you tarry until you're better, if you wait around for this day, well, once I get all my life figured out and fixed and, and all this stuff put in line, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. And so now in this moment, I will arise and go to Jesus and he will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Don't let your past, don't let your status, don't let the labels that have been placed upon you or your lesser desires or the illusion of tomorrow be the thing that stands in your way of responding to and following Jesus the King now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you because you have first come to us. 
Lord, we recognize that the only possible option we have of being united with you is through Jesus. And so, Lord, I ask that we would see Jesus as the king who we don't want to miss. Lord, would you remove any and all barriers and obstacles that stand in our way from responding to Jesus for the first time, but also, Lord, for the obstacles that keep us from faithfully following him each and every day. Lord, would your spirit awaken us and show us that what we need and that the longing of our hearts will never be satisfied, will never be found out until we find them in you. So Lord, would you awaken us and would you draw those who are far off and bring them near? Would you, Lord, would you bring sight to the blind? Would you bring life to the dead? And would you give us a vision and clarity of Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, our Messiah, that we might see him clearly, see ourselves clearly, and live the life you designed us to live for our good and your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.